from Number 5 Chambers, I'm Richard Kimblin. This is the planning podcast. It's Tuesday, the 21st of April, which is the fifth Tuesday of lockdown. Uh, This week, we start to look at COVID consequences, Uh, not what is happening now uh, or for the end of this lockdown period, which extends to the VE Day celebrations. Uh, With Christian Hawley, uh, barrister at Number 5 Chambers, the planning podcast looks at recession, small builders, small housing sites, looking at policy changes post-2008 liquidity crisis, and the 2010 to 2012 dips in growth, affordable housing, levers to spur economic activity, shore up housing numbers, meet delivery tests. Christian, hi. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good to be with you. Now, there's going to be a recession. Uh, The Deputy Governor of the Bank of England agreed yesterday with the OBR that a second quarter contraction of a third of the economy was not unrealistic, which I guess means pretty much the same thing as realistic. The Scrabble economists are getting less keen on a V-shaped recession and are talking about a U-shaped recession. Major house builders have furloughed 85% of their employees. They've shut sites. They report that nothing will happen before July. So, Christian, does it look like all sectors at all levels are at a dead halt? Right now, absolutely. Um, In terms of actual physical construction on the ground, um, from the small to the large schemes, very much reduced. Um, But in terms of those larger schemes, there still is the ability uh, to complete sites which are under development. I was out cycling only recently and happened to go on my rural route past a large industrial estate, uh, and uh, they were completing the external cladding on a on a warehouse because those sorts of schemes ultimately in most cases that they're, they're pre-let so there is an occupier at the end of it or at least contractually there is contrast that with the smaller schemes just around the corner from me uh, there's a small uh, house which is being completely remodeled it's probably about 90% done but completely stopped you, you just can't have the trades in there working uh, with with the crisis currently as it is. And it's very difficult to see just how soon it's going to be before they can get back in there. Let, let's think, not about now, let's look back a bit. Let's, let's think 2008, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, those previously obscure US lenders that went under, the financial crash that followed and the liquidity crisis. Uh, a recession and further downturn 2011-2012. Do, does any of that history help us or, or not? Well, it does to a degree. Um, because at first blush, of course, the effects are the same, aren't they? What we saw after the financial crash crash was building sites being shuttered, sites not being viable for a very long time, developers being cautious. What we see now, building sites being shuttered, uh, dire economic warnings, albeit some hope or optimism, and I, I don't know which of the two it is at this stage, uh, as to the shape of the recovery. 
The difference then, of course, was that the impact was financial in nature. Financial capital is the lifeblood of the development industry. Money prior to that had been expensive. All of those economic levers were pulled after the financial crash, low interest rates, supporting the banks in order to make sure that the economy didn't seize up and fail. We've got a similar situation here, but a different problem. The, the issue isn't so much lending and finance. The issue is how do we get the economy back and how do we get the confidence back when people are ultimately slowly going to emerge from this lockdown? It's not going to be a 24-hour transition back to what was normal. There's this new normal that's talked about, and it's it's how we manage our way through that. Okay, so that's that's the virus. But here we've we've got uh, something else which is obscure. We had this virus in a pangolin in a market in Wuhan, uh, which was previously uh, unknown to us, and now leaders speak of a war on the virus, and the Queen invokes Dame Vera Lynn. Uh, World War II references are the go-to references in this battle. But turning from the virus and back to the economy, um, think, think Dunkirk, think little ships, small but vital contributions to efforts in the national interest. Taking a big leap there to planning, why should little sites help us? Little sites help us because in a situation like this, every little helps. Um, but that, that's not just the end of it. Small sites became a particular focus of government policy post-crash, indeed significantly post-crash, 2014. The realisation that historically small to medium enterprise-sized house builders using small to medium-sized sites had historically delivered large amounts of housing numbers. So in 1988, some 40% of housing completions. By 2019, that was down to 12%. The impact of the financial crash had been to halve the numbers of small builders that were out there. And, you know, small sites can be ignored. They don't deliver a 1,000 homes or 3,000 homes. They deliver maybe five or maybe 15. But the point is, they all add up. And actually, it's small sites which can be delivered quickly. And they, they deliver locally. They deliver benefits locally. They deliver jobs locally. Uh, they have spin-off benefits, which are local in terms of council tax receipts, uh, input into the local economy, fulfilling uh, job vacancies in the locality. It's critical that these small sites come forward in the future, uh, and in my view, at an accelerated rate. Now, the, the lever that you're talking about there is the 2014 written ministerial statement. Um, what, what, what was going on there? What's the, what was the thinking behind that? Well, the, the real thinking there was those issues which we've just looked at. Why were small sites not delivering uh, as a proportion of the overall housing delivery as they used to? And it was identified that there were a number of issues which were uh, disproportionately affecting small house builders. So uh, planning obligations, the length of time to get planning permissions, uh, difficulties in securing finance, and, and also 
the requirement that they were to provide affordable housing. Because when you think about affordable housing, you know, every developer needs to make a profit or at the very least break even. Um, delivering affordable housing at a level of 30 or 40 percent out of nine houses takes an awful lot out of that development budget. And it makes it very difficult for those sites to come forward. So did we end up effectively with the WMS in the 2019 framework at paragraph 63? Is, is, that, is that the history of it? That is essentially the history of it, yes. Moving from the WMS to it being put on a formal national policy footing, the difficulty really has been in how that is actually approached in terms of decision-making and in terms of plan-making. What's quite clear from the framework is the policy direction, that really this is the policy, this is what you should do. You should not require affordable housing contributions, and that's what the PPG says. And is that what happens uh, routinely in terms of uh, appeal decisions and development management decisions? No, I mean, that's the point. It really is very surprising. Uh, And of course, we know that there can be exceptions. But think about that word, exception. It it must be in the smallest number of situations. Yet, I advise regularly on occasions where uh, either local authorities are seeking to rely on development plan policies which predate the WMS or the uh, paragraph 63, or indeed... Uh, local authorities that are still seeking some kind of exemption. And the issue really is that that is probably too widespread. Okay. Uh, So that's what's happening at development management stage and at appeal. What about about in local plans? uh, What are we seeing happening in terms of the battles that take place at examination? That must be straightforward. Uh, Well, you'd think so. You'd think so. But it's not. Um, But there's a useful example. Um, Both Reading Council and Oxford City Council recently have progressed local plans. Both sought an exemption, effectively, from this requirement so that they could require affordable housing to be... An exemption from the exemption? An exemption from the exemption. So we're we're really down the rabbit hole now. Which, again, demonstrates why this should be a rarity. This shouldn't be a common occurrence, because if you're an exemption from an exemption, you really are in a minority. But the point about those two examinations was that one authority was able to demonstrate that they were an exemption to an exemption, whereas one was not. And I think what's forgotten, and it does relate back to decision taking as well, is that the mere Uh, need for affordable housing. And I I don't question, of course, that there's a need for it. And I don't question that there's people on waiting lists that need those houses. But that isn't unusual. That pertains in nearly every local authority area. So that alone doesn't make one uh, an exception to the exception. What does make you an exception is where there are other circumstances. So in Reading, for example, a large proportion of their affordable housing historically had been delivered from small sites because they didn't have big sites. And they were able to evidence that through the local plan process. Oxford City liked the idea of having this exception, but they were unable to evidence it 
And the inspector wasn't happy with that. And after various iterations and, que and questions and being invited to provide the evidence, the inspector found that that policy wasn't sound. So you can see that battle there played out uh, in the plan making process. Well, that's that's great for barristers, I have to say, because it gives us an example to play with one going each way. Uh, now, look, um, the, the the exemption is in place. That That's a policy lever which the government has pulled and we've had for uh, uh, six, seven years. Uh, how's that going to help us in COVID consequences? Uh, other than actually doing what paragraph 63 says. Is, is there another lever that could be pulled? Well, I suppose the rationale behind um, the affordable housing exemption could be applied to other contributions. Uh, the most obvious one being SIL. At the present stage, SIL applies to all residential development or new residential development. It's something that could be looked at because that too imposes a financial burden on developers. And the interesting point about SIL as well is, of course, that often at least 50% of it is required to be paid at the start of development. And then the remaining 50%, if it is phased, not actually too far after that point. So not only is it a burden on small sites, but also it's a burden on cash flow because you haven't even made the money yet. You're at peak outlay of cash when you have to find the money for this additional contribution. But there is a policy decision to be made there because, of course, SIL receipts go to, broadly speaking, mitigating the impact of development. So if a development doesn't make a SIL contribution, arguably, there are impacts potentially arising from that scheme, be it pressure on school places, healthcare, a road junction, whatever it might well be, which are mitigated. That doesn't mean it shouldn't be refused or should be uh, given permission, um, but it, it, it's in the overall policy play. If you're going to sacrifice those contributions, what's the upside? Well, the upside is more sites coming forward, the economy moving, people getting back into jobs. Can I, 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 I get that, and I can imagine that uh, local authorities... Um, would be uh, very much affected if there was some sort of sill holiday. Uh, but what what might there be in such a policy lever, particularly in terms of if you're thinking about land value and and development coming forward and and bumping into housing delivery tests? What what what's playing out there in these small sites? Well, in the small sites, obviously, we need to come back to well. What's the, start, what's the starting point in terms of this development? And it, it all starts with the land. And it's only when it's worthwhile for the owner of that land, unless it happens to be presently owned by a developer, but in most cases it's not, it's only worthwhile that land being brought forward by the owner if he's going to get a return, which he considers is A, satisfactory to him, and B, represents probably fair value for a reasonable period of time. If he thinks he's going to get better value in the future because of an uptick in house prices or just generally the economy improving, then there's less incentive to sell now. And without that supply coming to the marketplace, again, you're starving this sector of the house building industry of development opportunities and therefore starving this sector of the economy. 
of the opportunity to grow at a time when, you know, it's going to be all hands to the pump. Of course, lots of the lots of the little ships were were taken compulsorily. They were requisitioned, but uh, we're not in that territory. Uh, what you're saying is that that you've got to find a willing seller, and the seller might want to sit back, maybe for a period of years, for better times. Yes, absolutely. And what we're going to need, if there is going to be a strong recovery, bearing in mind particularly that that prior to this unexpected shock, the fundamentals were there for continued and strong growth in the housing market. You know, there's not an issue with lending, or there wasn't an issue with lending. This is very much blindsided everybody, and what we need is every opportunity to be able to work our way back out of the slump, the freeze that we have now. And I think, again, going back to our first point, 2008 was a crash, whereas this is a freeze. And the best way to secure the continued growth of the house building industry and the wider economy is is how to unfreeze from where we are now. Well, Christian, you've done a fantastic job opening up a debate there. I can see that there's a lot of points to be made going both ways on what we've been discussing. But thank you very much for opening up that and some debate would be good. We've been looking at COVID consequences. There are very, very many more to go. International air travel has ground to a halt. Airports might close. On Monday, oil producers had to pay their customers to take their oil. Has COVID helped to achieve legal obligations to go net zero in carbon emissions? What was the vision of net zero for transport infrastructure and urban development pre-COVID? What will the policy look like when political leaders have the capacity to look at it again post-COVID? That's the planning podcast for next week with Nina Pindam and her guests. Christian? As always, you've been a star. Stay safe. And I look forward to seeing you in a virtual inquiry room sometime soon. (laughs) Look forward to it, Richard. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.